Well, it is remarkable how busy we are in our day. For most of us, we are in a season of life where it feels like we just go and go and go from the minute we get up to the minute we lay our head to sleep. Running here, running there, trying to get everything done. And it's strange, with the increase of technology came an increase in busyness. It was previously believed that the more advanced we became, the more free time we would have. John Maynard Keynes, the British economist, said this in 1930. Our grandchildren will only work around three hours a day and probably only by choice. But it seems the opposite is true. Where does all our free time go? In generations past, a woman would spend half a day doing laundry by hand, washing each piece individually with soap and water along a washboard, then more time to hang it all to dry, then more time to take it all down again, then more time to iron it and fold it. Now, you have a washing machine that washes it, you have another machine that dries it so that you can go on and do other things. We have dishwashers, microwaves, all of these other modern conveniences. Technology was supposed to make things easier for us to give us more free time to do the things that we want to do and yet it doesn't feel like we have a lot of extra time. Maybe you are in a season of life where this kind of busyness has passed already, but I think I speak for the most of us when I say that it feels like we're always on the go. Author Tony Crabb points this out in his book, Busy, How to Thrive in a World of Too Much. He says, there are always more incoming emails, more meetings, more things to read, more ideas to follow up, and digital mobile technology means you can easily crank through a few more to-do list items at home or on vacation or at the gym. The result inevitably is feeling overwhelmed. We're each finite human beings with finite energy and abilities attempting to get through an infinite amount. We feel a social pressure to do it all, at work and at home, and that's not just really difficult, it's impossible. And it's not just busyness, it's distraction. It seems that even in our most restful hours, technology just keeps giving us things to do. Many of us have developed a kind of Pavlov's, Pavlov's dog response to our phones and iPads. You hear that ding, and maybe you're even in a conversation with someone, but that ding has got your mind captured to think, who is it? Who is responding? Who might that be? And instead of communicating and giving the person in front of you your attention, you're already off doing something else. Some of you use the Bible on your phone, and I wonder if it is not a temptation. I remember some years ago preaching in the other building, and I was in a very serious, intense part of a sermon, and I looked down, and this particular person on their phone is smiling and doing this. It's tempting if your Bible is right there on that digital format, one flip of the thumb and you are off on email or something else. It seems that as things have developed, we have a shorter and shorter attention span and the church has responded to this by trying to accommodate and so they use lots of visual imagery and they have rock and music and they have fast-paced teaching and they have shorter sermons where the idea of singing a hymn or carefully working through a passage seems tedious and unexciting. If there's a people who are, whose mindset is go, 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 well, let's go, go, go during worship. 
And this becomes our daily experience. We have all of this to do and we're pulled in so many directions. And I wonder when we gather together if God just wants us to slow way down. And I think communion is a time for slowing way down. A time to think, ponder, consider, remember, and receive. Let me just read some scripture to you about what our blessed Lord has done for us as we prepare our hearts for communion today. This is Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were yet still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Luke chapter 16. I will be reading verses 19 through the end of the chapter. You might have a title over this section called The Rich Man and Lazarus. That is what we will be covering in our text today. Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man, this is Jesus speaking, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, 
For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word which teaches us about this realm and teaches us about the unseen realm. That You have not left us in the dark about these things, but that You have given us words and images and descriptions of what awaits those who are found to be righteous and what awaits those who are found to be wicked. And so Lord, as there are many things going on in this scene I just read, Help us, Lord, to not only understand the context and understand what it is that Jesus is describing, but help us understand, Lord, what this means for us and how this knowledge that was inscribed here for our benefit would help us as we live our lives under the sun. Lord, these are big and weighty matters. These are matters of life and death, misery or glory. And so, Lord, I pray that those who hear my voice now would be alert and attentive and that these words would not fall to the ground, but do everything that You and Your Spirit have intended for them to do. We pray for our children and children's church, Lord. I thank You that You have blessed us with many children in this church, and that uh, You have given us teachers. I pray, Lord, as Richard and Julie teach them, Lord, that the Word would go forth in power, that they would be received by these young, impressionable hearts, that Christ would be wonderful to them and all-satisfying to them. And while they may not have the kind of theology of their parents. They may not have a full and robust picture of all what this entails. May they have a simple love and a faith in Jesus. And even now, Lord, as we come to You in this busy life, full of distraction, may You please, Lord, set our hearts on You at this time. Please speak now, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we have been making our way through Luke's Gospel, and we come now to another parable of Jesus. And to fully understand the implication of this parable, it's important to understand the context and what has come before this. If you remember, Jesus has been teaching on the subject of money and the kingdom of God. He taught about the parable of the unjust steward, that we are to use money to make friends for ourselves, and then when that money fails, we will have friends who will welcome us into eternal dwellings. We saw that probably a month ago. It's this picture of how your earthly resources can be used for your eternal glory. And, as we saw in recent weeks, this teaching was not well received by all. We're told the Pharisees were there and they ridiculed Him. They saw the teaching of Jesus about wealth and the world to come not as something wise or praiseworthy, but something that they would scoff at. And it seems that this second parable of the rich man and Lazarus is a warning that is given to them. We are going to look at this parable together, which is a picture of their future and anyone's future 
who turns away and spurns the teachings of Christ and who does not repent. What we have in this parable is the tragic result of someone who did not make friends for himself with the wealth that he was given. The rich man had an abundance given to him by God, but he was so self-absorbed that he wasted it all on earthly pleasures, all the while neglecting the one who was at his gate, the poor man who could have welcomed him into eternal dwellings. Now, the rich man and Lazarus is very different than the other parables that Jesus has taught. You may have noticed that. Most of his parables involve some aspect of daily life in Israel. So you have a farmer planting seed, or there's a wedding feast, or a rebellious son, or weeds among the wheat. All very relatable to the first century hearer, and all having to do with aspects of the kingdom of God. But in this story, Jesus takes the hearer to an unseen realm. He takes us to a world beyond the grave. A place of rest for the righteous and a place of misery for the wicked. This is not a new teaching to His ministry, of course. Jesus called people into the kingdom all the while warning them of the dangers of hell. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, you'll find that we don't learn about hell from Paul, nor Peter, nor John, although all of them allude to it in some way. But we learn about hell from Jesus Himself. It was regularly woven into all of His teachings about the kingdom. He teaches of a fate that is worse than death. In fact, Jesus taught about hell more than all of the other writers of Scripture combined. Now, to the average person on the street, this might come as a surprise. The average unbeliever in our society today pictures Jesus as kind of a peaceful, peace-loving guru who just practices love and inclusion. In fact, in our culture, we are told that to love someone is to never offend them and to always agree with how they choose to live. But in reality, true love will always warn others of danger. And Jesus, who is the embodiment of love, regularly loved people by preaching on the reality of hell. Now, I recognize this is a very unpopular subject today, even in the church. Many in recent decades have sought to win people to Christ with the glories of heaven and the peace that comes from relationship with God rather than warn them of what is to come for the ungodly. But Jesus never did that. Jesus did not try to win people only by giving them the good news. I understand the temptation to avoid the subject. It's a, it's a very difficult doctrine. The doctrine of hell teaches that those who die in their sins will spend eternity not in a place of rest, not in a state of soul sleep, not in an unconscious they're in a better place kind of situation, but in a place of conscious and suffering misery. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Sin brings such terrible eternal consequences 
that it would be better to cut off that part of you which causes you to sin than to continue in it and wind up in hell. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole, of course. That means it's an exaggeration for the sake of making a point. It is not God's will for you to start maiming yourself. But the point is, do whatever is necessary to avoid this place of impending doom. This place that is reserved for the wrath of God. And so through this parable, we see Jesus loving His audience. We see Jesus even loving the Pharisees by giving them this warning. Let's look at it again together. Verse 19, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So, as Jesus begins, we are introduced to the two main characters. There is a rich man, and there is a poor beggar. And the contrast between the two could not be any greater. One lives in luxury and comfort, One lives in poverty and misery. And the rich man was so rich, we are told, that his daily attire was purple and fine linen. Purple clothing was very expensive back in that day. There was a process that was used by harvesting shellfish and and to make the dye purple from them was very costly. Intensive and, and, and only the very, very rich would be able to wear purple garments. This is why historically purple was the color of royalty. We're also told he wore fine linen. The original language alerts us to the fact that these are undergarments. So, think silk boxers here. Okay, Close to the skin the most comfortable clothes that you could find in the first century. And the details here are to communicate how wealthy this man was. He spared no expense for himself. And we are told that this was his daily habit. Dressing in extravagant clothing and feasting sumptuously. Your translation might say lavishly. If you remember the parable of the prodigal son in the last chapter, there was a great feast that was prepared and it was a special occasion for when this son returned. And what we find here in this story is that the man doesn't merely feast on special occasions, but every single day of his life. The finest foods, the finest wines, the finest clothing. And in stark contrast to this, we learn of the other main character in verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. So, a couple dozen yards away from this opulent display of affluence, there is another man, a poor man, The language seems to imply that he suffered from some crippling disability because in verse 20 it says, at his gate was laid. The Greek word here means to throw or to dump. So perhaps some people in town had pity on this man and they dropped him at the gate of the richest man in town. Because they knew if anyone could afford to take care of this man, it would be him. Not too many people lived in a gated home. Not too many people dressed like he does. And surely he would see this poor man every time his driver took him into town. Every time he returned, there he would be. This man Lazarus became a fixed presence there. 
Now, this is not the Lazarus we know from John's Gospel. This is a fictional character that Jesus uses to portray this contrast. And I think it's interesting that we don't know the rich man's name, but we're told of the poor man's name. His name is Lazarus. Now, you can picture the scene here as Jesus is teaching this. The Pharisees are in the audience, and as they're hearing about the rich man, they assume he must be blessed of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. These were the originators of the prosperity gospel. If you're rich, God made you rich because of your righteousness. If you're poor, God made you poor because of your sin. So this is the theology they maintained. And if anything went wrong in your life, if you became poor or if you became diseased, it was because God was angry with you. And so as they're hearing this story, a story about a rich man and a poor man, their minds are working through their theology. They nod and they think they understand what's happening. So the man Lazarus is sitting at the gate, and not only is he poor and crippled, but his is a picture of absolute destitution. Look at verse 21. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Lazarus would lay there daily, starving, in obvious need, longing to just eat the scraps that fell from the table. You know those leftover pieces that you scrape off the plate into the trash every night? You know those pieces that fall from your table that hopefully your little dog comes over and eats, like my precious dog Rudy, always planting himself under the sloppiest kid at the table? This is all he needed. This is all he wanted. Even just a little bit of compassion from the rich man could have lifted this poor man out of his misery. But the rich man does what the Pharisees did. They avoided the sick and the suffering and the poor. They would have done the same thing because of their twisted theology. This man deserves to be here. This man's suffering is because of his sin. And probably just to punctuate the picture of suffering here, Jesus describes that as Lazarus sits there in his misery, some dogs come over and begin licking his sores. These would probably be ulcers due to disease, maybe malnutrition. It's a picture of the ultimate indignity. Now, you have to realize in the Gospels, when you hear about dogs, we're not talking about your, your pet at home. They did not have dogs as pets. In fact, the worst insult you could call someone back then was, they're a dog. Because dogs were scavengers. Don't think of your little Yorkshire Terrier with the little bow in its head, in its hair. Think of a hyena or, or some kind of scavenger. These were animals that went around town looking for garbage. So they have come to this suffering man, Lazarus, to lick at his wounds, maybe even to eat at them. Now, this, this was all the more reason for Jesus' audience to regard him as cursed. I mean, look at him. He's a scavenger himself. He's a companion of dogs. What must he have done to deserve such misery? The rich man is covered with purple and fine linen, and Lazarus is covered with sores. Of course, the Pharisees would see the rich man as virtuous, and they would see this beggar 
as someone to be avoided. One lived in luxury, one lived in poverty, and yet what comes next is the great equalizer, death. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Of course, the rich man was buried. He was probably a well-respected member of the community. He was wealthy. He was perceived as being blessed by God. And certainly his funeral and his burial were with all the pomp and circumstance one would expect from a man who lived such a lavish lifestyle. I imagine no expense was spared even in his death. There's no mention of Lazarus being buried because the poor and the crippled like Lazarus would not usually be given a proper burial. They would be thrown into the valley of Hinnom, which is also called Gehenna. This was the community dump. This is where they burned all the refuse of the city. And this is where people without money were thrown. It's actually a place that Jesus often uses as a picture of hell because the fire burns there night and day. And so rather than receiving a proper burial, the poor and the outcasts and the criminals of society were discarded there. Now, while there's no mention of where his body was taken, we are told where his soul goes, it's carried by angels to Abraham's side. Abraham's side would be the place of peace and rest for every Jew. Abraham was the friend of God. Abraham was the place where their ancestors had gone. And so anyone who was with Abraham was in a place of God's favor. And here this cursed man Lazarus was there? The rich man in his pomp and circumstance on his way to his funeral is carried up by pallbearers, I imagine. And here this destitute and diseased man at the gate is shown to be lifted up by angels into paradise. And this is the part where everything gets turned upside down for the audience. For these people who have very fixed ideas about what happens after death and who and who does not inherit blessing and cursing, what Jesus says here is meant to shock and surprise. Verse 22 the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. <clears throat> so the twist of the story is obvious. The rich man, whom everyone in the audience thought had God's blessing, ends up in a place of suffering. And the poor man, who was assumed to be under the curse of God, inherits a place of blessing and rest. Now, a few weeks ago, we heard about the parable of the unjust steward. And Jesus taught that we are to use our wealth so that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, we would have used that and invested it to gain friends for ourselves who will open up eternal dwellings for us. 
So that parable is contrasted with this parable. Here's a man who had all the earthly wealth one could desire. And rather than investing it in loving God and loving his neighbor, he wasted it all on himself and ended up in a place of divine judgment. Absent of the goodness and mercy of God. And so Jesus makes this point through this story. Those without mercy in this life will not be shown mercy in the life to come. Those who are without mercy in this life will not be shown mercy in the life to come. Is not this the testimony of Scripture? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The Apostle John says in his first epistle, 1 John 3.17, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The answer is, it doesn't. Now, we're not told anything about the character of the man Lazarus because the focus of the parable is not about him. We can make assumptions based on the outcome that Lazarus was a righteous man, meaning he was a true believer. But Jesus wants us to focus our attention on the rich man because he is the point. The rich man is not merely being punished for not sharing his wealth. That much is true. But because he has a heart that is absent of God's love, just like the Pharisees. His devotion was not to God, but to himself. In fact, two weeks ago, we saw this in verse 13 where Jesus says, You cannot serve God in money. And then in verse 15, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So the Pharisees love money. They see wealth as the blessing of God. And Jesus says neither one of those things is true. God doesn't love rich people. You know what God loves? God loves those who show mercy. The rich man was without mercy, and now his merriment is over. No more fine clothes. No more extravagant parties. No more gated mansion. This day his soul has been required of him, and he is described as being in torment. Now again, I know people have a hard time with this doctrine. Good Christians have a hard time with this doctrine. I mean, what kind of God would assign a person to an eternity of misery? Eternity! Meaning it never ends. And if that's you today, I want to have you look at this from a slightly different angle. Rather than sitting in judgment on God and saying, what kind of God could put someone in a place like hell forever. I want you to think, what crimes could be so awful as to warrant that kind of punishment? If you hear of a man who broke the law and received a $50 fine, you realize that his offense was minor. A misdemeanor. But if you hear of someone who received seven consecutive life sentences, your reaction is not, what kind of judge could do such a thing? Your reaction is, what must he have done to deserve that? It must have been awful. And this is how this subject must be approached. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? Because God is holy, 
Hell is just. And you and I are not merely guilty of breaking an occasional arbitrary law, but we are guilty of sinning against the goodness of our Creator in thought, word, and deed millions of times over a lifetime. Millions of times. We are self-absorbed. We are like this rich man. We are self-absorbed by nature. We care very little about our Creator. By nature, we are full of lies and blasphemy and greed and selfishness, idolatry, lust, anger, gossip, bitterness, unthankfulness. We have an overall lack of desire to give glory to God and a very strong compulsion to give glory to ourselves. That is our condition. And here in the case of the rich man, his evil was manifested in that he had a man at his gate made in the image of God. And he ignored him. And he would not even give him his trash. The stuff he scrapes into the trash. Not just one afternoon. Not just one incident. But this was his lifestyle. And it's the same with you and me. It's not like you just had an off day and God says, the just punishment for you is hell. It's every day of your life. It's every day of every son of Adam. And I was thinking this week of how these sins all overlap and, and how the sin of this rich man is not just one sin. It's not like his neglect of Lazarus is just one sin. It's a combination of overlapping sins. There's pride, covetousness, greed, selfishness, self-centeredness, the idolatry of riches, the lack of natural affection, the lack of compassion, the lack of sympathy. Jesus said all of the commandments of God are, are boiled down to two, love God and love your neighbor, meaning this rich man broke all of them because he loved neither. So, as difficult a doctrine as this may be, we need to stand back and consider the holiness of God. So, we see what a just punishment looks like. Now, this is a parable, I believe. I, I don't think Lazarus dipping his finger in water would satisfy. I would think a man in Hades would want something more than a drop. But it's meant to communicate misery. Look at verse 24. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, of course, Abraham was the father of the Jews, and so this man would be a Jew, and he would look to Abraham as the patriarch of his lineage. And I imagine he is a religious Jew. This is the leader of his religion. And yet we know that being a child of Abraham is not enough. The Jews were banking on the fact that they were born in the right family, and they were of the chosen people, and they had circumcision, and therefore, they were saved. But what did John the Baptist come and preach? He said to those Pharisees, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, saying Abraham is your father is going to get you nowhere with God.
Now, there are so many fascinating details here. This is the kind of text I love to just spend a lot of time thinking about. I, I noticed that there's no defense that was given by this man. Did you notice that? There's no protest. He doesn't say, what in the world am I doing here? How did I come to a place like this? I shouldn't be here. That's interesting. There's none of that. It makes me think that people who go to hell will realize they deserve to be there. I mean, once everything is brought into the light, and once all of the evil of their heart is exposed, they will have no defense. How could they? So, he, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't argue that he shouldn't be there. Secondly, I notice that there's no repentance on the part of the man. He's not crying out, Oh, what have I done? How could I have been so heartless? How could I have been so evil against this man made in the image of God? There's none of that. In fact, it's obvious there's no repentance at all based on the way he's talking to Abraham. Look what he says. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And what? Send Lazarus. It's like Lazarus is just another one of his servants. Someone he can order around to do things for him. It's like Lazarus is still beneath him. There's no repentance there. There's no sorrow that he is culpable in the death of this man at his gate. There's no shame. He just sees Lazarus as a means to get him what he wants. Which is not repentance. There's no repentance here. I think it's also telling that he knows Lazarus by name. He knows him by name. How does he know him by name? Because he saw him at his gate every single day. So here's this man who's suffering and he wants his needs met. He wants mercy. The very thing that he denied to Lazarus, he wants mercy now for himself. The man who did not help Lazarus, he now wants Lazarus to help him. Abraham responds in verse 25. He says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. <clears throat> Another observation. Abraham tells the man to remember. He says, remember how you lived? Remember how Lazarus lived? This makes it clear to me that there's no memory loss in hell. People who, who, who go there will know why they are there and they will know how they lived. It won't bring repentance. It won't bring remorse. But they will remember. And so Abraham reminds the man of his life of plenty and he reminds him of Lazarus and his life of misery. And here now the two have switched. The one who lived in luxury is suffering, and the one who suffered now lives in luxury. So that's the first reason Abraham gives for not fulfilling his request. He says, you've already had your good things. But there's a second reason he gives. It's impossible. There's a great chasm that separates the two places. There is a barrier that cannot be crossed. Meaning, once you are in heaven, you cannot go to hell 
Once you are in hell, you cannot go to heaven. It is forever fixed. So the rich man considers this, has another idea. He says maybe he could send Lazarus to go warn others. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Lazarus was once the beggar, and now it is the rich man. And again, there's no repentance. Lazarus is just someone that does his bidding for him. He treats Lazarus with the same disdain he had when he was on earth, even though he's in the place of God's favor. And since the man realizes he cannot get out, he wants to warn his family not to come to this same place. And you know what his concern is? They have not been warned adequately. He believes his brothers do not have enough information. They need to know that this place exists. They need to know that if they don't repent of their sin, they're going to find themselves in the same place of misery. But is that true? Is it true that they don't have sufficient knowledge? Look what Abraham says in verse 29. He says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You know what Abraham says? They have the Bible. They have God's Word. They have all the revelation they need. Everything they need to know about righteousness and sin, everything they know, need to know about the wrath of God and judgment, it's all found in His revealed Word. Surely these brothers of His would have heard about the blessings and cursings in the law of Moses. Surely they would recognize that the God of the earth who does what is right would not leave justice or ignore justice, I should say, at a point of a person's death. Surely they would know of the prophet Daniel where he said in Daniel 12.2 that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. They would have known these things. But they don't care about the Bible. This man's brothers don't care about the Bible. And he knows that. That's why he responds in verse 30. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now notice the arrogance of this man. No, Abraham. Do you think Abraham would know this? (laughs) No, Abraham, you're wrong. I know better than you. So here is this fool correcting the father of the faith who's been in glory for a thousand years. But notice, he thinks, no, if someone did a miracle for them, If someone came back from the dead for them, they would believe. Then they would believe. If we could just show some proof, if you could just show some proof to your unbelieving neighbor whose heart is like a stone, if you could just perform some kind of miracle, then they would believe. It's not true. Do you know that Jesus raised a man from the dead? His name was Lazarus. 
different guy, but I think it's interesting that his name was Lazarus too. Did the religious leaders repent when Jesus raised a man from the dead for a crowd of people to see? No. Do you know what their response was? John 11.53 From that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. So the religious leaders get word that Jesus raised a man from the dead and all these people testify to it. And rather than falling on their faces before God, they said, we got to kill this guy. And even further on in John 12, it says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to, Lazarus to death as well. <laughs> so they want, not only want to kill Jesus now, they want to kill Lazarus too. <laughs> Do you know why a dead man coming back to life again will not be enough for people to repent? Because what you see with your eyes does not change the condition of your heart. What you see with your eyes, whether it's a miracle or some divine sign, it doesn't change the heart. If it did, everyone who saw a miracle of Jesus would have become a disciple of Jesus. All of them. That's all the proof I need. He turned water into wine. I must follow Him. He speaks the truth. But that's not what happens. Your neighbor says, if you could show me some sign, then I would believe. Give them the Word of God. They won't believe with the sign. Now, the rich man knows that his family does not take the Bible seriously. His brothers don't read the Bible. They don't believe the Bible. They need something more than that. But it won't be given. And this is how Jesus ends it in verse 31. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that was their indictment. God speaks through His Word, and if they don't hear that voice, they won't respond to any other. Even if someone comes back from the dead, even the Son of God, And the weight of those words just sort of hangs over as Jesus ends that parable. The rich man who had everything now has nothing. The rich man who was never in need is now forever in want. The most famous living author of the 1930s was William Somerset Maugham, M-A-U-G-H-A-M, affectionately known as Willie. Willie was an accomplished novelist, playwright, and short story writer. His novel of human bondage is a classic. His play, The Constant Wife, has gone through thousands of stagings. He was a man who lived for his own refined tastes, his comfort, and his sexual perversions. In 1965, at the age of 91, he still was a fabulously rich man, receiving over 300 fan letters a week. But in the end, what did he get? The London Times carried this excerpt by his nephew Robin. Quote, 
I looked around the living room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered that the via itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, were worth millions. Willie had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the millionaires on the Riviera. He dined off silver plates, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henri, his footman. One afternoon, writes his nephew Robin, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible. He looked horrible. His face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that the same text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a bunch of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what do we take away from this parable of the rich man and Lazarus? I think the first thing is we need to know that salvation is not a, man, a matter of being rich or poor. These are just examples to contrast the audience that Jesus has in the Pharisees there who had this upside-down idea. But surely the parable is not teaching that uh, if you are the opposite of what they thought, if you are rich, you are going to hell, and if you are poor, somehow you are blessed of God and going to heaven. The rich man did not love his neighbor, which revealed he did not love God. And we can assume that Lazarus, not because he was poor, but because he had faith in the God of Abraham that he was justified. I think we can also learn and be reminded that heaven and hell are both real, literal places. Once we cross the eternal horizon, there are no second chances. These are real destinations and they are fixed and there is no crossing between one to the other. I think we can also learn that the true followers of Christ will not be indifferent to the plight of the poor. If your heart does not go out to people who are suffering, if you have no desire to help people who are in need, I think this is a good opportunity to examine yourself and to see whether you are in the faith. Another thing we learn here in conclusion is the revealed Word of God has the power to turn unbelief into faith, not miracles. There are people today that go around this world looking for signs. They love signs and wonders. They love apparitions of Mary. They are looking for some evidence that God is still speaking today. And what they neglect is the very Word of God that we have. It's not miracles. It's that God speaks through His Word. And lastly, perhaps the greatest lesson to learn from this story is that when death comes knocking at your door, there is only one thing that matters. Your relationship to Jesus Christ. Whether rich or poor, whether sick or well, are you found in Him? Are you justified by faith? Have you been put in a right standing by God because of the perfect work of Jesus on your behalf? That is what is most important and most necessary. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You again for allowing us this time to hear of these eternal truths, to know that 
this life is not all that there is, and that there is a place of rest for those who are in Christ, and there is a place of judgment for those who are found in their sin. And if there are any here today who are in sin, Lord, I pray that they would turn to You by faith, that they would go to the God who welcomes them, who will take away their sin, take away their shame, make them a child of God, and give them an inheritance along with Lazarus that will never end in a place without tears and without suffering. Please bless us today, Lord. Help us to walk with You. Help us, Lord, as we receive this reminder to have a sense of urgency to speak the truth to our fellow man and to help those in need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.